You're listening to Voice Acting Mastery, episode number 124. Welcome to the Voice Acting Mastery podcast with Crispin Freeman. VoiceActingMastery.com is your place to learn both the skills and the mindset you need to become a professional voice actor, even if you're just getting started. In each episode of this podcast, you'll discover valuable tips, tricks, and insider information to help you portray characters in animation, video games, and beyond. And now here's your host, voice actor Crispin Freeman. Hi there. My name is Crispin Freeman, and I'll be your guide through the world of voice acting. If you'd like to know more about me, feel free to check out my personal website at www.crispinfreeman.com. This is the second part of my interview with my good friend Richard Tatum. Richard is not only an accomplished voice actor and voiceover teacher, but also an amazing producer of voiceover demos. You may know him as Rex Goodman in Fallout 4, the voice of Theodore Roosevelt in Civilization VI, and Omar Harmozy from the animated series Static Shock. I first came across Richard's work as a demo producer when one of my students played me her demos, and I was blown away by how well they represented her abilities as an actress. Not only was her character demo very compelling, but her commercial demo was impressive as well. When I asked her who had produced them, she introduced me to Richard, and he and I have been friends ever since. In our previous interview segment, we discussed the beginning of Richard's acting journey and how his strong theatrical acting background helped him pursue a voiceover career. Amazingly, Richard broke into voice acting not just once, but twice. The first time was around 1996, when he got his first agent and started booking voiceover work in Los Angeles. Unfortunately, when the Actors' Union strike against commercials in 1999 dragged on for six months, Richard found that he needed to pursue other employment opportunities outside of voiceover. Years later, in 2011, he decided to approach voice acting again. This time around, he had a more methodical approach, as well as far more experience under his belt. I think it's incredibly useful to hear what changed and what stayed the same between both time periods when it comes to trying to break into the voice acting world. In this episode, we'll talk about how Richard began producing demos for voice actors. Through some wonderful synchronicity, Richard was able to join forces with a colleague of his to start coaching voice actors as well as help develop their demos. Not only do we discuss what you should and should not put on your demo, Richard also explains the mindset you need to have in order to use that demo to market yourself effectively to agents and casting directors. I certainly learned a lot from this segment with Richard, and I'm sure you will as well. And now, the feature segment. So, remind me again when the commercial strike happened, because um, I was in New York at the time. Do you remember what year that was? Oh, man. Uh... It was, it was, it was, 1099? Yeah, it was like late 90s, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah. It was before I came out to Los Angeles, because I was in New York still doing theater and doing some voiceover work out there, mm. and the commercial strike sort of happened when I was out there. Um, but after the commercial strike, it sounds like William Morris, you know, that, they, they disbanded their voiceover department a bit? No, no, what they did is they, uh, they did what a lot of big agencies do, which is they looked at their bottom line. People weren't booking. Well, of course they weren't booking. There was a strike on. Right. So they dropped a lot of the people that they didn't expect, you know, who, who literally were not making up to a certain amount of money right. that year. Right, right. Um, and they just started looking for 
you know, other people. So I was adrift in the world looking for new representation. Gotcha. Yeah. Did it take you long to find new representation? Less time than it had previously, because at that point I'd been around enough that I had, you know, met other people, other, you know, reps and managers and things like that. And so um, I got picked up, it was about half a year later, I guess. Okay. Yeah. Um, again, I was making phone calls, sending out demos. Uh, and that, that was, hmm, that was right in the middle of quality wise of, you know, what the kind of auditions I was getting William Morris and what I was getting prior to that. It was thin. Uh Um, it was, however, (laughs) so I wasn't getting out a lot. I was getting maybe two auditions a week, Mm. you know, not a lot, still more than I had originally, Yeah, but, um, not a lot. So I decided maybe I was going to back burner that for a little while and focus on other things to, you know, keep my artistic chops up. So I started, I reinvigorated my theatrical life, mm. um, helped create a new theater company uh, that did classics and modern uh, work and new work and a whole bunch of things and um, started, started directing theater. Um, and that became like a real passion for me to the point where I, I kind of stopped doing on stage acting. Uh, I enjoyed directing so much mm. that that's sort of where it, it took me. Um, and was this during sort of the noughts, the, the yeah. Okay. The aughts. Yeah. The noughts. <laughs> the noughts. Um, um, yes. For, for a while, about uh, eight years, um, uh, got to the point I directed so many plays I actually could join the stage directors union. Wow. Uh, which I'm a proud member of, the SDC. Yay. Um, but uh, interesting. But So at that point, though, like I said, about eight years, I went, you know, maybe I should look back at my voiceover career again. Uh-huh. Uh, so um, I put together new demos, went looking, did the work, made the calls, sent out the emails, sent out the emails, sent out the emails, and uh, about three months uh-huh. uh, ended up getting a meeting with the nice folks at Atlas Talent. Um, had a delightful meeting. They hip-pocketed me for a couple of months, signed me, and uh, here we are. Yeah. And for those who don't know, hip-pocketing means that the agent is working with you, but you haven't formally signed a contract. Yeah, it's exactly. It's, it's a way of testing you in the field. Right. So that yeah. way the two, the two of you can figure out whether you're going to have a good working relationship. Right. And then if, if, uh, if the fire lights, if things are working, <laughs> then you can sign a more formal agreement and, and go from there. Um, about what time was this when you decided to sort of dive back into the voiceover world? I think it was 2.15 in the afternoon. Uh, how do you mean about what time? 2008-ish? <laughs> oh, um, year around? it was like 2011. 2011. Yeah, around there. Say. Yeah. So now that's going to be interesting to me because was there a big difference in how you approached an agent in 2011 in well within the age of the internet and the home studio and everything else and how you approached an agent back in what was it the the mid to late 90s when you yeah. first started when when you went after your first agent it was probably mid 90s? Yeah. 
Okay. Mid late nineties. Mid to yeah. late nineties. And then I mean twenty by twenty eleven, tech has changed a lot. Utterly. Yep. So was it a very different process for you approaching an agent in twenty eleven than it was in the nineties? When push comes to shove, no. The details of it, yes. Mm. That is to say, I still had a demo to shop. I still had to shop it to people. Mm-hmm. Um the way in which I shopped it changed. That is to say, instead of me physically showing up or mailing it out, I now could send it electronically. Mm-hmm. And, hey, look, it's on my website as well. You know, so in my cover letter, I'm telling them, uh, here's, here's, my, here's an example of my work. If you feel more comfortable listening to it on my website, you can listen to it here. Mm-hmm. Um, and at that point, too, I had more things I could brag about. Mm-hmm. Here's what I've done in my career. Here are the people I've worked with and who trust me and know me. Um, this is where my strengths are. I'm a jukebox actor. I do lots of accents and dialects and um, et cetera, et cetera. Here are my strong suits. Here's why you should be interested in me over somebody else. Mm-hmm. And then I just kept hitting them up like every three weeks. I, I made a chart. Uh, I was much more methodical about it this time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I started at the top agencies and worked my way down. Mm-hmm. Um, every three weeks, have you had a chance to listen to it? Until I got some answer. Mm-hmm. Uh, before I would drop stuff off, make some phone calls, and then essentially decide they didn't like me since they weren't hustling. Right. Now I know that if they haven't gotten back to me, Probably because they haven't started listening to the demos yet. Yeah. Or at least there's a possibility of that. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I would keep going after them until they would either say, we're not interested, you sound too much like somebody we already have, or several people we already have, or uh, we're not looking to be able to build our roster, or we're going out of business, or we've decided to take up farming, you know, <laughs> whatever. Um, but you're looking for a definitive answer because you understand that they're busy and they yes. get distracted. Yep. And there may be many reasons why they haven't called you back yet. And I'm not the center of their universe. No. Not even on the map. Yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, it's funny because with, with my agent, it was a similar thing. I, I kept checking in and che- checking in and checking in. And eventually she said, what, somebody hasn't signed you yet? And I was like, ah! no. And she's like, well, come on, let's have a meeting. Come on and let's, let's talk about it. Love it. <laughs> but yeah, it took, it took some, it, it, because they are very busy. They have to service their own clients. Absolutely. They, they don't have that much time to focus on. Someone that they don't. have no idea. There's an unknown quantity. Yeah. And during that time, you ha- did you build your own sound booth as well? Because I assume you didn't have any sort of home recording equipment in the 90s. Uh, I did not. Well, in the nineties, I was still going into people's offices. Yeah. Um, yeah, I started putting a booth together in the early aughts. Okay. Um, as quiet a room as I could find. I did the whole thing with holding a towel over my head for a little (laughs) while. Uh, eventually I, I, you know, I, as a theater guy and a guy with a, a broad theater background, not just acting, mm. one of the reasons I actually liked Oberlin's program so much is because they insisted you not just be an actor. You okay. learn everything. I knew how to do a lot of stuff. I knew how to build stuff mm. as a result. So I So sat, you say do everything, you mean everything in the theater. Everything in the theater. Not just acting, but building <clears throat> sets, costumes, lighting. Lights. Yeah, the, the whole nine. Um, we had a complete package training. And in fact, a lot of people coming out of that program ended up 
being very successful as designers. Okay. Um, so I sat down and designed a booth for myself mm. that I could buy, I could build on the cheap that would be sufficient for where I was living at the time. Mm. Uh, I was living in Culver City, off a little off the beaten path. Culver City is sort of on the edge of Los Angeles. It's kind of its own incorporated city. And, um, but it was just away enough from ambient noise issues with the exception of the occasional airplane or motorcycle that I didn't need a super muscular, impenetrable booth of doom. Mm. So I built myself a booth out of pipe and two to three layers of uh, um, acoustic uh, quilting, basically, mm. the kind of stuff they hang up in music rooms. Okay. Um, rubber pads on the floor. On top of that is carpeting. Um, everything soft, everything, yeah, you know, non-flat. Mm. Put in my equipment. Um, designed a little airflow system that was basically a small portable fan connected to a dryer uh, conduit. Wow. Um, the stuff that, you know, that shoots the lint out. You sure, know? yeah. Um, ran that into one side of the booth, ran it, uh, so that was pulling out the hot air from the top, uh, stuck a, something similar into the bottom, which would then suck the cool air in from the ground. Physics. Yay! Um, and that allowed me, while it was still pretty freaking hot in the summer, it allowed me to breathe in there. Yeah. Uh, relatively, it was a relatively quiet. I put like four blankets on top of that fan with just enough opening so that the air could go through, but you couldn't hear the fan. Um, and that allowed me to be able to record, um, audiobooks. Nice. So, you know, I wasn't inhaling my own carbon dioxide. Um, and you know, cause that was happening. I'd be in there for about an hour and I'd start to get dizzy and I'd pass out. But once I put in the air system... I could be in there for hours. Wow. And yeah, and all of that, apart from the computer and the microphone, that was about 600 bucks. Yeah. Wow, that's very impressive. Um, so I love hearing all this stuff about um, how the way you've interacted with the industry on certain technical levels has changed. Mm. But the, shall we say, the human emotional negotiations haven't really Right. Yeah. People, agents are still agents. Yeah. And you still, you may be using different tools, but you still have to have the same emotional intelligence when approaching people, when understanding, (laughs) you know, Um, because I I think what happens is a lot of times is that um, technology changes certain people's expectations of emotion. Mm -hmm. Um, And and especially because um, technology speeds up a lot of things. But our biology has not sped up. Correct. Right? So it's this kind of thing like, well, yes, it used to take a week to ship something across the country. Now you can do it overnight. But people can still only work really eight, nine, ten hours a day with before they start getting burned out. Like yeah. y- the body. And so an agent can only handle so much stuff coming at them. And then you've got to deal with them as a limited human being who has limited time and limited focus and limited energy. Right. Um, so the the wisdom of understanding how people work in the industry, right? There's the wisdom of understanding how to approach agents. There's the wisdom of looking at a piece of commercial copy and saying, I know they want Grandpa Simpson. 
right? <laughs> and knowing right. what casting directors are doing and how that, like, that hasn't really changed. No, none it's of just that has. you submit it on an MP3 from whatever digital device that you you have rather right. than on reel-to-reel tape that's, you know, delivered by courier. <laughs> you know, like, like <laughs> just just because the mechanisms have changed doesn't mean that the emotional relationships has changed. And that's really right. useful to hear. And I think it's useful for my audience to hear because many times some pe- people are coming at this and they think it's just a matter of figuring out the tech. If I get the right mic and the right booth and I have oh, the right sound right. and I have the right person listen to me, I'm done. And it's like... There is a culture of how the entertainment industry works, and if you don't understand it, you're going to be constantly swimming upstream. Well, and the flip side of that, too, is much like musicians buying the the most amazing and expensive Fender is not going to make you a better guitarist. (laughs) No! Oh, oh, sorry. Why didn't you tell me this before, I'm Richard? sorry. Come on. You better return it, then. Okay. Damn. (laughs) Um, so, uh, let's talk about demos. Sure. Because that's how I first came across your work, even though we'd worked in projects together as I looked at our mutual resume. I know, yeah. Which is the (laughs) hilarious thing about voiceover, right? You're like, oh, you worked on that too? Because we're almost never in the booth at the same time. Um, the reason we first got in contact was because I was having students who were coming to me as students were want to and giving me, uh, their demos to listen to. And it's one, it's an, it's a service that I offer to people who take class with me is that I say, Hey, if you want me to to listen to a demo that you put together and give you some feedback, I'm happy to do that. Sure. So I, I've, I've listened to my students demos from time to time. And then I finally heard some demos that were really good. And I was like, who made this demo? You know, and they're like, well, Richard Tatum made this demo. Well, I have to meet this man. So talk to me about how you started producing demos. How did that begin? That's actually, um, I'll try and give you the short version of that. Uh, I had started teaching. It was a buddy of mine actually from the theater mm-hmm. who ended, had ended up in casting. And he was helping to cast a video game that I was auditioning for. And I'm, I'm, uh, they went on a break, like a 10 minute air break in the middle of the crazy day when everybody's coming in reading. He ran up to me and had said, and said, Hey, I'm thinking about starting to teach. Do you want to teach with me? And the funny thing was, is that quite literally the week before I started thinking about teaching. And so, I mean, kismet, complete kismet. So we started this little business, absolute voiceover. Uh, after a while, after, so we started teaching classes Uh and then we thought, well, while we're doing classes, people are coming to us and starting to ask about demos. We know a lot about this stuff from his end being in casting and my end is talent and have, and people, you know, and having certainly done enough demos and heard what's worked and what's not worked in my own demo work and having a pretty reasonably good set of ears myself. Um, my partner eventually ended up, uh, leaving not only the business, but also the city. He ended up getting married and moving to uh, Texas to continue his voiceover work there, but also teaching graduate school. Okay. Uh, Terrific actor, terrific director. Um, God bless. But now, so it's all mine now, absolute voiceover. But I kept producing demos, and people always seemed very happy with not just the process, but also the results. Mm. And I started getting really good feedback as People were getting agents, and people were getting noticed, and people were starting to move ahead in their careers. Um, I was like, well, that's cool. I guess I'm doing it right. Um, 
And that's kind of how it all started. And it's something I decided that it, it's really fun to do. Uh, I don't do a lot of them uh, because not everybody's ready for one. Yeah. Uh, even though they... It's funny. So many people... I mean, we've had this conversation. So many people come to you and they assume, like a headshot, the first thing they should do is get a demo, even though they have nothing to put on that demo. Yeah. There's nothing to demonstrate. Right. Yet. So I don't take everybody who walks in the door. There are a lot yeah. of people in L.A. who will say, hey, you want to do a demo? Sure. Throw me three grand and I'll do that. Um, I, I won't. I only work with people whom I feel are ready to do a demo. I'll tell them what they should do mm. before they get to doing a demo. Take more acting classes. You know, your, your reads are great, but they're kind of stiff. Why don't you do some improv? Um, that will help loosen you up, help loosen me up. Uh, it's a great thing to do. Um, have you ever taken a class before? You might want to take a few classes. And, of course, the reason for that is the people they are in competition with have. Right. The people they're up against are monsters. Mm-hmm. I mean, genius actors with amazing gifts. And they're jumping into a pool of sharks mm. without the ability to swim, without waders, and without flip-flops. Yeah. Um, or flippers. Uh, or a snorkel. You know, get your equipment, get get your stuff in order, get ready to go. Yeah. Then, then maybe you'll be able to survive yeah. with the sharks. Um, so I have this conversation with people. So I tend to turn away more people than I than I bring on. Plus, it's kind of a time consuming project putting together a demo to do it right. Um, and so, yeah, I don't I don't end up taking a lot of people. But when I do, they get a lot of focus. It's really fun. I get to know them as people, which is part of the process of putting together a demo for me. Right. Because what makes, particularly nowadays, a demo great is it should reflect their personality, who they are, not just who can they sound like, what can they sound like. Mm-hmm. It's what's your spin on this? What's, what, how can we take this role and make it yours? What weird voices do you do that nobody else does? What's unique to you that we can put on there? Um, one, of, one of my favorite examples of this is I always ask, do you do any imitations? Hmm. Because you use imitations in the weirdest places when you're auditioning for animation and games. Yeah. Um, there are ways into finding a character with, through imitations. And she said, well, yeah, but... You wouldn't want to hear it. I'm like, well, why not? I was like, well, it's my fifth grade math teacher. I'm like, okay, let's hear it. So she did her fifth grade math teacher. She sounded nothing like, I mean, I don't know what her fifth grade math teacher sounded like, yeah. but she sounded like not, not, no fifth grade math teacher I would have had who is a guy. Right. But she sounded exactly like a 15-year-old boy. And that was her way into finding how to do teenage boys. Nice. Yeah. And Very that's the cool. kind of thing I'm talking about. Yeah. Well, I love the fact that it came out of a position of wanting to teach acting. Yeah. I think it's definitely true that there are there are people who are very good at producing demos. Yep. And what I mean by that is that they are good at bringing together all the disparate pieces, the music, the sound effects, the mixing technology, the recording technology, to make a demo sound polished. It's not every demo producer that knows how to elicit good performances out of an actor. And the Lord knows that I've been in that position in some of my early demos where the recording and the mixing and the music sound great, but my performance is pretty lackluster. Mm. And the demo producer at the time 
didn't speak actor, right? Wasn't, <laughs> didn't, either hadn't spent the time with me to know what was unique about me, uh, or didn't know how to talk to me in such a way to elicit the kind of performances that would, that would be, that would be competitive, that would allow me to swim with the sharks. Right. Right? So that's, that's really great that you, that, that the idea of the demo was coming from, well, we've got to teach you how to act first, and if, or we've got to be honest about where you are as an actor. Right. And if, if you, Richard, are not the person that can teach them what they need to do better, you can tell them, hey, I think you should go do this before we try to record anything. Otherwise, right. you, you don't, you're not demonstrating the skills in your demo that will be competitive with the other sharks you're going to be swimming with. Exactly. Because yeah. I think people don't understand that if you're putting a demo together, especially if you're going to be pursuing an agent, if you're not better than the people the agent already has... There's nothing there. There's yeah. nothing there. Yeah. Like, you've got to be at least, at the very bare minimum, as good as... Right. If not better at certain things than the people they already have. Otherwise, why do they need you? Exactly right. Yeah, I mean, the, it's it's this... There's a very common disconnect, I think, with actors that they assume because they are... They feel they are an actor that an agent then should just sign them. <laughs> QED. <laughs> uh, unfortunately... That's, it a, that's is a, a button on your iPhone, right? QED. It is, as a matter of fact, yes. Then, okay, exactly. And you get exactly what you want every okay, time. Good. Yeah. Uh, without any research or conversation. Um, <laughs> it's a mind-reading button. Yeah. Yeah, well, exactly. So, of course, it is a business. Agenting is a business. That's why a lot of agents start off as lawyers. Uh, it's about contracts, about negotiation. It's about trying to do well for your clients. So they're listening for and looking for things they can sell. Yeah. What's special about you? What's what's excellent about you? So when you uh, how do you find out what is special about someone? Do you have a process for tr- trying to figure out what's unique about someone? Oh, that I is mean, a really interesting question. Um Your story about the whole fifth grade teacher is great, right? Yeah. Because that and something like that happened to me during my demo too, which mm. was we had prepped all this text and then my demo coach uh Richard Horvitz was kind enough to Ah, uh, love Richard. To he was my he was my mentor when I was younger. Um he was kind enough to help me coach me on my demo some and uh he you know, he said, "What about that crazy uh, you know, gay hairdresser that you do. <laughs> and I was like, really? You want me to put that on my demo? He's like, it's brilliant. Do it. Do it. And I was like, okay. But isn't that interesting? The actor always discounts and says, no one wants to hear that. And then the external ears yep. go, um, stop judging it. Why don't we hmm. trot it out? Maybe it needs a little polish, wait, but it could wait, be really wait, useful. Wait, are you saying actors judge themselves? <laughs> <laughs> I know it's a crazy thought, it's, isn't it? It seems so impossible. Actors are self-critical. Oh, yeah, not in my experience. So, is there um, um, the idea of the I- imitations is a, is a great one? Um, is, is there a, when, when when someone comes to you and says, "I want to do, do a demo," and you're looking at them and you're trying to figure out what kind of animal they are, right? You're trying to figure out what makes them unique and special. What what is there any technique you use for that? Uh, how do you how do you suss someone? I usually have a coffee sit down. Okay. Particularly if I don't know them at all. I mean, people I know, I usually know them from somewhere, so I have some context. Yeah. Um, I usually just have a sit down with somebody for like an hour and just talk. Uh-huh. Um, I ask them about 
their background, ask them, uh, you know, have they studied acting? Have they studied voice acting? Um, I've done enough different kinds of things now that where someone has been informs me a lot about who they are and their perspective. Uh Uh, When I was directing theater, as I still am directing theater, but I got extremely good over time at being able to tell what somebody's training was within about 30 seconds of them opening their mouth in an audition. Right. Uh, I could tell the improv people from the classical people and the modern drama people. I mean, there's such a, a, a giant puzzle picture of what makes up an actor's work that it was very easy for me to see this, this is where they trained, this is how they trained, this is where their focus is, this is where they need to go. That, so, yeah, see, that's, the, that's the, the glory of a good director. I think uh, sometimes people think directing is just having an opinion and making people execute what, how you think it should be. Yeah, it's not. But it's not. Directing, yeah. if you're going to be an effective director at all at all, it's, it's like every uh, actor that comes up in front of you, you have to figure out what part of the decathlon they're good at. <laughs> yeah. Right? Like, yeah. oh, this one's really good at discus. Oh, this one's really good at javelin. Oh, this one's really good at the 50-yard dash. Right? And then you, and you have to sort of, you have to talk to them in their language. Exactly. Or else you're not going to get the results you want. So as a director, you are constantly changing hats. You, you have to have such a broad understanding of the different types of actors and the different ways that actors ply their craft yeah. in order to communicate with them effectively, or otherwise you can't get a cohesive whole. I, I, I'm sure it's not that different from a conductor. You have to understand the, the fingering on a violin is very different from the embouchure on a trumpet, and if you don't know what's going on, you're not going to get the symphony to sound right. Like You have to sort of understand where everybody's coming from, or else God help you. Yeah, it's also very much, I mean, exactly. It's also very much like a good choreographer. Uh, who sees what a dancer is good at and then brings out those things. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you look at it, you look at uh, so many films where they bring in actors who have no dance background to dance. Right. Well, they've danced. They've just never <laughs> studied dancing. So the choreographer will have them move and try things, and they'll go, oh, see, here's, here's what I can do to make it look like they're really good at dancing. And this combine, uh, put together a piece of choreography that focuses on the things they're really best at. Yeah, and absolutely, this is what you put on a demo. You don't put on your B-quality work. You don't put on your B-plus work. Yeah. You put on the stuff you can wake up at 2 in the morning and nail without thinking about it. The, you know, hilarious little aside, the same thing happened in the first Matrix movie. And because they were having the actors do the kung fu, oh. <laughs> each one of them did kung fu very differently. And so they choreographed the kung fu because uh, Lawrence Fishburne could do really good kicks. So it was all leg moves. Oh, that's um, interesting. Uh, Hugo Weaving had this sort of very sort of arm-shoulder sort of sensibility about stuff. So there's all this sort of heavy shoulder punching. Um, Keanu Reeves had hurt his back at the time. And so they had to sort of style his stuff so that he didn't have to hurt his back. I mean, so, but like the, oh, even the huh. Kung Fu choreographer had to deal with the actor as they were and what they could give and change the choreography to suit the sensibility of the actor. Right. Um, that's great. That, so that makes a lot of sense to me. Um, 
because you're approaching demo production from the standpoint of a director. You're, you're leaning on your uh, directing skills and talent for being able to suss actors and elicit from them um, the best possible performance of what they are good at, what's in their sweet spot. Right. Yeah, I think, and, and that's also, I think, a misconception that people have, that a demo, you have to show off how you can do all these different things, when a demo really is about showing off what is in your what what is it at the center of your abilities like what's where is your heart not oh i can deal with these wacky voices but okay that's great but who are you and and what is it that you can do that is unique and different from everybody else yeah my my thought on that is is a little bit from one from column a one from column b yeah. It's always about what their strengths are, and if you if there's a wacky voice you can do that you can sell as a character, yeah. not as a voice, but as a personality with a point of view, then we're definitely going to throw in there Further. in the mix somewhere. Yeah. It's difficult to overemphasize how valuable it is to have an experienced director help you with your demo. When I was finally ready to make my own character animation demo. I not only hired a skilled producer who could make the audio sound as good as possible, but I also hired a voice director to help bring out my best performances. I knew that my demo would need to have both top-notch audio quality as well as compelling performances in order to get the attention of industry professionals. It's wonderful that Richard can offer both of these crucial aspects to his clients. He's not only a talented demo producer, but as a director, he's had years of experience working with all types of actors and helping them give their best performances. To be able to bring that level of knowledge to the voiceover demo process is definitely a huge advantage. In the next episode, Richard and I will do our best to dispel some of the greatest misconceptions about demos. We'll also talk about how to know when you're ready to make a demo so you can be sure you're not approaching a demo producer too early. Then we'll wrap up our discussion with Richard's final advice to aspiring voice actors. If you're enjoying the interview so far, I would so appreciate it if you would head over to the iTunes store, look up this podcast, and leave me a nice review. You can rate the podcast using the five-star system, and you can also leave comments to show your support. Just open up iTunes on your computer, go to the iTunes store, search for Voice Acting Mastery, and I'll pop up instantly. Once you've clicked on the podcast listing in the iTunes store, you should see a button that says, Write a Review. Click on that button to do just that. I'd like to reach as many people as possible with my podcast, and every positive comment you leave helps other aspiring voice actors find this information. Thanks so much, and I'll see you in the next episode. You've been listening to the Voice Acting Mastery Podcast with Crispin Freeman. To get your free report revealing the five most common mistakes to avoid in voice acting, point your web browser to www.freevoiceactinggift.com. Thanks for listening.